Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded April 15th, 2023. Well, the world is changing fast, and nowhere is that more evident perhaps than in Europe, where the political class has decided to ditch liberal democracy in favor of an authoritarianism not seen there in almost a century. Germany and France are leading the regression with policies and actions that have brought the citizenry into the streets, demanding the restoration of rights and freedoms, so far to no avail. Diana Johnstone is an author and journalist. Her book titles include From Mad to Madness, Inside Pentagon Nuclear War Planning, Circle in the Darkness, Memoirs of a World Watcher, and Fool's Crusade, Yugoslavia, NATO, and Western Delusion. Diana's articles can be found at consortiumnews.com, where her recent piece, Germans Down and Russians Out, Anti-War Views Criminalized in Germany, appears. Diana Johnstone in the first half. And irregardless of which level of government or party affiliation the political process in Canada is incapable of preventing the rampaging destruction of what remains of the natural ecology here. Though the people say they want to protect and preserve the environment, what they're offered from on high is silence and worse yet, dismissive lip service. On Vancouver Island, this means the destruction of trees and ecosystems more ancient than human history. Igmar Lee is a longtime BC-based environment defender who describes himself as a, quote, rotten, belligerent, iconoclastic, ungrateful, unrepentant, and unpleasant tree hugger. He has spent a lifetime making enemies of the greedhead political fraudsters, money-grubbing business leaders, spinmeisters, and journalistic hacks, as he names them, working in the service of rapine corporations and their captured legislators. Igmar's latest article, Voracious Industrial Logging Between Klaskish and Klaskino Inlet, recalls just what's being sacrificed and on whose altar. Igmar Lee and the destruction of the final forest frontiers in the second half. But first, Diana Johnstone and a resounding echo of Europe's political past ringing ominously in the streets of Berlin and Paris today. Well, welcome back to the program, Diana. Oh, I'm glad to be back talking with you. Well, it's always my pleasure, of course. Now, Diana, before getting to your article, Germans Down and Russians Out, as you're in Paris, uh, where uh, the constitutional court brought in its ruling on President Macron's, I'll call it pseudo-parliamentary move to change the country's pension plan yesterday. Diana, what did the court say and how is its verdict being received there? Well, okay, to start with, the constitutional court ruled in favor of Macron's so-called reform, which is a regression in the view of everybody here. And uh, that, that uh, we can talk about that a lot. I want to say, though, to start off, that in your, re- in your introduction, uh, I think it's a little bit of a mistake to put France and Germany in the same sack because they've never been so divided. Uh, they're really on two different trajectories altogether. There's, they have very little in common at this moment. And also, I think, you see, there's, there's always tendency, especially in North America, to constantly see that Europe is going back to the Nazi period or something. And that, that's really not the problem. To get back to France, the problem here is not a reversion to to authoritarian Nazism or something. It's pure neoliberalism is what you have here. You have the authoritarian middle. Uh, you have the orders from the European Union 
to make the, the laws the same in different countries. And this um, retirement reform is really something that Macron, as a stalwart European, is pushing through. Uh, as neoliberal, the, the, um, it, it's part of lowering social standards as, as a, partly as a result of deindustrialization rather than having policies to counter the deindustrialization. That's a big subject, but it's very important. And th- this, is, this is, has nothing to do with the 1930s or 40s. So it, th- this, is, this is, has to do with Thatcherism in Europe um, to lower the social costs and de- along with deindustrialization, which is also Thatcherism. This goes back to Thatcherism, not to Hitler. Well, I would have a hard time discerning. Well, no, I'm not going to tell jokes about that. But I mean, uh, as far as that goes, though, Germany and France are alike. I, they're both deindustrializing, and I guess it's confusing for North Americans and I, North Americans, and I imagine it is for Europeans too, to discern between national interests and continental European Union interests, and which take precedence, especially when it comes to uh, things like uh, the war in Ukraine and so forth, or trade with uh, Russia or not, or, or sanctions, or trading with China or sanctions. We saw. Macron in China, followed by uh, Anna um, Annalena uh, Bar- Barbach, who seemed on the surface to echo what Macron was saying, uh, no, which le- that left me very confused. Not at all, but you see, she didn't. She didn't. <laughs> she did not. I mean, they're on. No, completely not, because Macron went there saying you know, being friendly with China, and she went there lecturing them on how they should behave. Uh, it was completely different. It's, it's, you see, they're not on the same line at all. Oh, I thought Van, I thought von der Leyen did the lecturing, but uh, Barbach. Oh, she does too. I mean, she's the worst. Well, I don't know. She and Barbach are pretty much the same, except uh, von der Leyen is, is perhaps worse. She's older. <laughs> Well, she and she she's that she sits at the head of the the uh, European Union. I thought I was surprised by Macron's comments in China, but I assumed that it was because the people are out in the streets setting fires, they're upset, and that he was trying to save face for the domestic audience. But when it comes to it, he's going to go along with what you know Germany's position in Ukraine and Russia and in China too, that he, he'll fall in line. Am I being overly cynical? Well, uh, no, you're not being overly cynical. You maybe be underly. No, no, I don't think it had a thing to do with the situation at home. It made no impression whatsoever on domestic opinion. None, none, absolutely none. Um, uh, I I think on the contrary, he was saying something that uh, a lot of people in France on the higher levels would quietly agree with. Uh, they they don't want to have a, they don't want to get involved in a war with China and they don't want to be dragged into a war with China by the United States. You get I mean the Gaulist policy was the first to recognize communist China. It's a little echo of Gaulism, just slightly, but not that he's Gaulist. But I mean, there's a great deal of reverence for Gaulism in France, even though there are no politicians that are really Gaulist. But 
but that was it didn't it didn't have anything to do with him he's now extremely unpopular and so whatever he does he's not going to get much support because of the of France is totally obsessed with the retirement reform totally so people here pay no attention to the war in Ukraine i mean it just practically doesn't exist here because everybody is obsessed with the retirement uh reform and they've been demonstrating against that and they probably will continue to demonstrate against it even though it's now been accepted by the constitutional court which is a, 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 actually a very political court it's a bunch it's nine people who are political appointees it's not j- judges or anything it's not like the supreme court it is it, it's politicians who've been uh, put in that position and uh, several of them were appointed by Macron and not surprisingly they went along with Macron and uh, so so there's nothing surprising about that well i i, I referred to the pseudo parliamentary process that brought us to this uh, place uh, still in france how did uh, macron kind of went outside of the normal operating procedure of the parliament to push his uh, uh, um, pension reform uh, 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 initiative that it, so that it ended up in this uh, rubber stamp kangaroo court or constitutional court, as you described. Uh, how uh, can you describe for our audience and myself, they, who don't understand the ins and outs of French politics, how he managed to go ar- around the parliament like that? Well, it's perfectly constitutional. He used he used a, a, a rule in in. Uh, in the constitution and it's sort of intended to show who is the majority or not. The problem is that in this circumstance, it really was more than inappropriate because he doesn't have a majority uh, and uh, he's trying to make a majority with the Republican party, which is the conservative party, which is now disappearing practically. uh, that the politics of that are, are are pretty complicated. He didn't break any rules, although this, the complaints of the left were trying to, to say that he had overused them. But uh, you, you see, he's just been elected for five years. I mean, one of the years is passed. He's in there for four years, and he's now deeply unpopular. And the trade union, the, the main trade union confederation, the CGT, just elected a new head. And it's a young woman, by the way, who's a philosophy, uh, who studied philosophy. That's really a change for the CGT. And she says that the unions, well, you know, that they won't talk to Macron after this. Uh, he, he wants to then start talking with them for more reforms of going in the same direction. She says they won't. So the the relations between Macron and the public in its various pieces are are extremely bad. Well, they've declared they've declared war. Essentially, the unions have, and they've called for a, a mobilization, a mass mobilization, a general strike for May Day. Yeah, well, we'll see how 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 that goes because there are more than one trade union confederation and. The, the CGT is usually the more radical of the, of the lot. It's not sure that everybody will go along with that. I mean, 
not usually not everybody goes along on these things, but but in any case, it also it's not clear what they can ask for when it's passed. It's 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 very difficult because they asked for a referendum, and uh, that was turned down on the most with a reasoning that was totally sophist, total sophistry, because uh, it, it was just ridiculous. They they asked to to be able to have a referendum. And the Constitutional Court ruled against that because the, the referendum was to maintain the retirement age at 62. And the court said, oh, well, that's, since, since that's the way the law is now, that's not a reform, so you can't have a, 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 a referendum because a referendum is supposed to be for a reform. <laughs> I mean, that is really stretching things because, of course, it's to prevent the, the law that they just approved, which makes it 64. So it, it, it would amount to be a reform in that sense. Well, but, Diana, what's, what's the big deal? I mean, if from this point of view, way over here on the other side of the Atlantic, 62, 64, okay, it's a couple years. Uh, what else is involved in this that makes well, people, well, that ignites I, people? I know, so I know, I know. People don't understand that. Uh, in other countries, they say, uh, United States people want to work till they fall off over dead. And uh, But the problem is here that people do want to, <laughs> to enjoy life somewhat. And you see, the big problem is that setting this age of 64 is actually a, a, a way of lowering pensions and lo lowering the cost of labor because most most employees employers these days do not want employees that are seniors and they fire them and so you you have a lot of people over 60 who will not be able to retire because this law doesn't allow you to retire early before you've been able to retire early by have taking a low or something or other. But this says you can't retire until 64. And you that's going to be people that are then unemployed in the last years of their lives. And, and with getting pensions later, other countries don't have that sensitivity to social equality that the French do. And well, also to say that France is like he suggested, France and Germany are moving to the right. France is not moving to the right. I mean, the people are not moving to the right. They're they're staying where they were, with with caring to defend their uh, social benefits, and uh, that's unlike most of the rest of the West, which is ready to say, "Well, I'm doing well. The hell with the others." If they didn't, you know, that's the American attitude. <laughs> Well, isn't that the problem everywhere that the governments are moving in one direction and the population isn't following and that this is causing this riveting that we're seeing in Germany and in France? Maybe the uh, the the uh, external externalities of it are differed somewhat, you know, circumstances change. Or, but well, the idea is that there is this widening gap between the people and those that would rule them. Well, uh, yeah, yes, uh, that's that's for sure. I mean, at the same time that they're talking about uh, forcing democracy on the whole world, it's not working that well right here. That's obvious. But the, there's a big difference. You say deindustrialization. It's not really the same. France has been being deindustrialized for a long, long time, whereas Germany has been uh, triumphant. 
and Germany is now deindustrializing itself for the sake of Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> That's very, very different. You see, Macron is in to the because he has allowed American companies to buy the, the main in major industries. Uh, Macron is absolutely complicit in the deindustrialization, which then makes it necessary to to lower social costs because you don't have you're not producing anything anymore. You see, the two things go together. Uh, I mean, the 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 important critique is don't is to revive your your production because then you can afford these social benefits. But if you just say, well, we'll let our productive apparatus collapse because we have services and startups which don't produce anything that, that, that that's good enough and it and it obviously is not and in germany it's very there's an interesting difference in germany because one thing war f- fever is much greater in germany than france in france it is, I mean, there isn't any war fever i mean i say people are ignoring it and if they were called attention to it, they might be protesting, because I don't think it's that popular. But in Germany, it's very strange, because you have this this war government, especially the Greens, who seem to be absolutely enjoying, hooray, we're on the side of the United States against the Russians, instead of, of, of being uh, against both of them. And, I mean, there is something absolutely sick in the these ruling politicians and their joy in being against the Russians, uh, which really is like, you know, we've been guilty too long, now let them be the guilty ones, that sort of thing. Um, well, I, I was asking my wife that this morning, who she is German, and I, I, we were talking about her relatives and how they respond and so forth, and I was wondering if this is maybe a little bit of schadenfreude uh, involved here. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking today with Diana Johnstone. Diana is an author and journalist. Her book titles include From Mad to Madness, Inside Pentagon War Planning, Circle in the Darkness, Memoirs of a World Watcher, and Fool's Crusade, Yugoslavia, NATO, and Western Delusion. Her articles are found at consortiumnews.com, and we haven't got to yet, Diana, your recent piece, Germans Down and Russians Out. It's subbed anti-war views criminalized in Germany. Well, when you said earlier that it's not like we're going back to the dread German uh, Nazi period, which is a, a, a default in the media almost when in almost all cases it's back to hitler again we never stop hearing about him so maybe he did take over the world after all or at least the media sphere so diana explain now how we're not going back to those times when we've got uh, the laws that you describe in your article that have criminalized peace movements have criminalized dissent against the war and not like breaking Windows kinds of dissent, but just people speaking and saying, as did uh, Heinrich uh, uh, Bucher, who was convicted for saying, we should not, Germany should never get into a war with Russia again. This, and I suppose he said other things last June as well, but got him um, arrested and convicted. Well, How is that possible? Well, it is extraordinary. You see, there. Already, the laws are pretty restrictive in Germany. Um, And, I mean, there's a law that you can't approve a a crime. Well, already, that's a little bit much. I mean, I don't think there are laws in the United States that you can't approve 
a, a crime. I mean, you don't if you're not involved in it. I, I I don't know, but that's the law. But it has never before, to my mind, to my knowledge, ever applied to war to somebody else's war. I mean, the the Germans have enthusiastically approved all of the. Uh, invasions of the United by the United States in the Middle East. They took part in in bombing in the bombing of Yugoslavia. Uh, they thought it was just great. Uh, that was one you know, one of their historic enemies. Uh, it's a little bit like the, uh, the little Russia, right? Um, and uh, no nobody ever called that. It it's just this all of a sudden and. And they've got this phrase, you see how words work, because Baerbach says, we must have a world, she doesn't say in which nobody can invade another country, but in which nobody can invade a neighboring country. So in fact, the problem with Russia invading Ukraine is it's a neighbor, but if you invade a country on the other side of the world, well, that's okay. Uh, but you mustn't invade your neighbor. Well, of course, the neighbor happens to be sort of Russian. I mean, it's a very unique case, this Ukraine-Russia business, because actually the part of Ukraine that they've invaded is historically Russia. And it's, it's a very unique kind of case. I'm not but you can try to at least to explain it. But now if you try to explain this very unique case, then you are approving a crime. And this is this is unheard of, but this is a threat that is hanging over people and people are getting fired. And it's it's really it's it's really really strange. Well in 2014 the coup regime of Kiev began uh, sending artillery and missiles and stuff into the eastern separatist part of the country. I mean, there's nothing more neighborly than actually blowing up people that are your actual neighbors within your own country. But even for uh, bringing up that fact, the and it is a fact, people in Germany are finding themselves at risk. There, there's the journalist Alina Lipp, who has been in uh, Donetsk reporting on uh, not from where the missiles are made and shipped, but from where they land and kill. And she has been attacked by the authorities in Germany for being an apologist. Well, what what exactly is? Do you, are you familiar with uh, with the Lip case, uh, yes. Diana? Yeah, I, I mean, I yes, I I know about that, and that uh, uh, of course they and there are there are a couple of other uh, journalists who went there too, and and they get into trouble. You're not supposed to r report from that. I mean, it's just. You're just not supposed to report about that. You're just not. It's supposed to just not have have happened. I mean, it, it's it's extraordinary, and, and it has worked a lot to intimidate people. Um, but you know, to relate that to the deindustrialization, one thing that's is very strange, I think, and surprising that in a capitalist society. This very, very uh, economic Germany, you know, industrial Germany, how it is that the business class goes along with this ideology, this ideology of we get back against Russia, uh, when it's so bad for them. And it's interesting to find this contrast 
trust. In especially in East Germany, there's this association of craftsmen. Well, that can be anybody. That can be a hairdresser, a, a, a butcher, a, a, a carpenter. A, you know, craftsmen, but people who who do something right, and they are protesting because. They needed that Russian gas to, to run their businesses, and, and they are protesting. Whereas the big companies, the great big companies, say, well, we'll move our factories to the United States. That's fine. You know, they have no patriotism whatsoever. This has been the biggest thing of all, to me, at least, where the the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines, uh, bringing delivering Russian gas to uh, Germany primarily, but Western Europe as well, the destruction of those, it's pretty obvious that it was done by America and its allies. I, I mean, only a moron would really believe otherwise at this point. And yet in Germany, it's not spoken of. Or for the people who actually realize it, they, they don't talk about it because, as you say, America is their friend. And the damage that's done to the German economy must be incalculable. It is. And the, the, the thing is that, the, of course, the U.S., uh, it's now so obvious. I mean, I've been saying this, uh, but, it's, but it's much more obvious to everybody than it has been before that Germany has been an occupied country since 1945. It is militarily occupied. There are U.S. bases all over the place. The young leaders are indoctrinated in the United States. They are more or less selected and indoctrinated in the United States. I'm sure these Greens, I mean, Annalena, Annalena Baerbach is, is an example. She's a perfect American, uh, except she doesn't speak English that well for having spent time there. But nevertheless, uh, the, 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 the Germany is really under the thumb. And, uh, but there's more freedom of expression in the United States than is allowed in Germany, because Germany, in fact, it, you see, it doesn't have the tradition of freedom of speech that the United States has or, or some other places have, uh, it, that goes back to the 19th century. That isn't just a matter of Hitler, but the idea that the, media, that the newspapers should not criticize the state was already uh, there in Germany already, you see. I find it fascinating, uh, Diana, that w when you write about the, the cross-front Threat. Here in Canada, there was recently a report that was became quite notorious in certain circles, at least, where, and it was a government-supported uh, report, too, as it turned out in our parliament by the left, most vociferously, that was talking about online um, disinformation. And this has become the, the big uh, clarion call in many countries, the Restrict Act in your own United States, for example. But uh, primary amongst this paper that was being cited at the time, Enemy of My Enemy, uh, was the title of it, was the, the worry that extreme left and extreme right were going to come together in this, what's been described as the political horseshoe in some circles as well. You write about the cross-front threat in Germany. Do you want to describe uh, what oh, that yes. means? This is very important. This is the way that the authoritarian middle defends itself. Anybody who disagrees with them on the left is an extremist on the left. Anybody who disagrees them in a conservative way is an extremist on the right. And, of course, if they got together, they might stop the wars, for instance. 
Because there, you see, that's exactly the case in, in, in Germany, that a lot of the people who are now branded as extreme right, and that's true in France also, these people that are branded as extreme this are not necessarily extreme at all. What is extreme to me is Ursula von der Leyen and, and Baerbach, because they are extremely anxious to defeat Russia in war, which I think is a rather extreme position. And people who don't want to do that are now branded as extremists. And they can't get together because the left in particular has got this idea, oh, we are virtuous and we can't be contaminated by being touched by somebody on the right. Oh dear, oh dear, you see. And, and, and so you can never get together what would be the majority because the majority would include people on the left and on the right, but they don't. But they 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 can't get it together. So they have to leave the power to someone like Macron, who is you know an authoritarian middle. Well, and if uh, Ukraine is any indication of where things are going, and it seems very much to me like a case of a dog's tail wagging the dog, but uh, they have gone further and they call they've labeled journalists and others who would go against the, the line as information terrorists. And there's a quote from Andrea Shapovolov uh, of the Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council says, quote, info terrorists should know that they will have to answer to the law as war criminals. We've seen from uh, Ukraine, uh, Myrot Voretz, uh, this kill list of journalists and others with the temerity to speak against the Ukrainian regime, not just in their own country, but around the world. And we've seen the willingness of agents to blow up cafes uh, in Russia, as we've seen in a couple of instances, or put car, uh, car bombs on, uh, under people's cars, uh, prominent Russians. Uh, but they've also threatened Canadians and Americans and even uh, rock star Roger Waters because they don't like what they have to say about the war and about the people waging it. That's right. That, that, that's right. I mean, what is amazing is is that this this extreme, this very extreme nationalist Ukraine is is, is being is, is supported by by the by the left in places. But the media, you see, the media is completely dominated by the by the war party. There, there are economic interests there. The, the, the ownership of media, of mass media, is, is linked to the military-industrial complex. By the way, the military-industrial complex also includes the German military-industrial complex, Rheinmetall, which is now having a boom making weapons for Ukraine, maybe in the United is largely owned by American stockholders. So they're making money off the, the German, uh, whereas ordinary Germans are having a harder time getting along. The, the investors in the military industrial complex keep getting their returns. Yeah, well, their, their retirements are, are insured, but even more than the media is the parliamentary, at least in Canada. I, I know in the, in the United States law, there's a, a number, I think it was like two thirds of the representatives there were invested in war industries. But in Canada, in the parliament, there's not a, a single voice, not even one that opposes the war in Ukraine. And it's cost Canada 
they admit to to more than eight billion dollars being spent by Canada, and we're not a large country already. Uh, and they're promising to keep on spending and, and just keep it going until you know whenever, forever. Um, Diana, uh, there's much more to your article is fantastic, and it's much deeper than I can do credit in this format. It's Germans down and Russians out. It's at consortiumnews.com. Again, the author is Diana Johnstone. Diana, thanks a lot for coming on again and telling us a little bit about this, eh? Okay, you're very welcome. I thank you for for getting in touch with me. Thanks very much. Well, and I hope the spring finally sproings in Paris for you, as we hope for here on the Pacific coast of Canada. We're still waiting. (laughs) (laughs) We all are. Okay, for better things altogether. (laughs) Well, well, thanks again, Diana, and everyone else stay tuned, because I'm going to be speaking with Igmar Lee after the break on the destruction of the forests here on Vancouver Island and throughout British Columbia and beyond. Thanks again, Diana. Thank you. Moscow, Tokyo, New York, Guerrilla Radio is everywhere at guerrilla-radio.com. Everywhere, all the time. Chicago, Jakarta, Helsinki, Cape Town, Sao Paulo, Manchester, Bangalore, and somewhere in Welcome back to Guerrilla Radio. Well, regardless of which level of government or party affiliation, the political process in Canada is incapable of preventing the rampaging destruction of what remains of the natural ecology here. Though the people say they want to protect and preserve the environment, what they're offered from on high is silence or worse yet, dismissive lip service. On Vancouver Island, this means the destruction of trees and ecosystems more ancient than human history. Igmar Lee is a longtime BC-based environment defender who describes himself as a, quote, rotten, belligerent, iconoclastic, ungrateful, unrepentant, and unpleasant tree hugger. He's spent a lifetime making enemies of the greedhead political fraudsters, money-grubbing business leaders, spinmeisters, and journalistic hacks, as he puts it, that are working in the service of rapine corporations and their captured legislators. Igmar's latest article, Voracious Industrial Logging Between Klaskish and Klaskino Inlet, recalls just what is being sacrificed and on whose altar. Welcome back to the program, Igmar. Hey, Chris. Great to be here again, and thanks so much for being there and covering these issues. Well, uh, it's always fantastic to speak with you, and I wish I knew more about it, but I depend on people like you with your knowledge. Uh, the, your article begins with a trip that you took to the west side of Vancouver Island some years back now. Uh, first, uh, perhaps, Igmar, you can describe where Klaskish and Klasino inlets are and uh, paint a picture for our listeners unfamiliar. Okay, well, if you uh, look at Vancouver Island and imagine it like a humpback whale, the Brooks Peninsula is uh, like the pectoral fin that sticks out into the uh, ocean. And um, it uh, just to the north of the Brooks Peninsula is the Klaskish uh, watershed and basin. And then uh, the next inlet north is called Klaskino Inlet. And just so... And, and and your article now you you talk about going going up there now this is you know some time ago um, what what were you was this uh why were you going up there I mean this is this I mean we should stress this is pretty inaccessible territory even even today but but when you went it was uh, even more so I imagine 
Yeah. Well, just uh, to put it in context, too, um, when, um, you know, Captain Cook uh, first showed up uh, on the West Coast, uh, you know, his first view of Vancouver Island was the Brooks Peninsula, and he mentions that, uh, he called it Woody Point. And, uh, you know, so that was the, and immediately they uh, started getting some otters, otter pelts, and, uh, you know, the that sort of devolved from there, this uh, extraction. But anyway, um, I got interested in that area back when uh, East Creek st uh, began to be bandied around as sort of a watershed that was uh, uh, very uh, immediately threatened by logging and was still entirely in intact. And East Creek is the first watershed to the north of the Brooks Peninsula, which is a, a wilderness area, which doesn't give me a whole lot of uh, confidence, but uh, it should be a, a national park, uh, given its incredible uh, importance uh, as a, a area of ancient history, uh, human history and biodiversity. Um, anyway, East Creek uh, in that, time had not been logged. Uh, there was no roads or anything uh, going into there. So a buddy of mine um, jumped in uh, my old Volvo and we smashed our way down the 100 kilometers of logging road uh, behind uh, that begins uh, in behind the Port Alice uh, pulp mill, which is where the blacktop ends that's the as far as you can get on vancouver island on blacktop and then after that you're onto these logging roads so it's 100 kilometers out to the west coast from port alice and we got to uh Klaskino inlet and we uh, uh carried on uh, uh up to the class which had been uh already pretty much gutted uh by interfor so um we uh got ourselves uh, to the as close as we could to the uh, beginning of the hike up to the height of land in between the Klaskish uh, watershed and the East Creek watershed. And it took us two days to get up through the bush uh, up to the height of land where we could finally look over into East Creek and see this incredible vista of uh, you know, a, a absolutely intact primeval wilderness with uh, the spectacular nun attacks of the Brooks Peninsula in the, as a backdrop. And, um, you know, we were uh, just uh, uh, absolutely amazed. And at that time, East Creek, I believe there are 83 primary watersheds on Vancouver Island, and East Creek would have been the 79th to be gutted and roaded by industrial logging. Yeah, and the Nunatak, that's the uh, a mountain, uh, a group of mountains there, right? Yeah, a Nunatak is a mountain that protrudes out of the glacier. So, um, you know, uh, I'm told that 10,000 years ago, most of Vancouver Island was buried under ice. And, uh, you know, there were a few ice-free refugias, a uh, part of which is, is the... Um, 
um, south uh, west corner of the Brooks. Um, I think about just looking at it uh, by uh, Google Earth, it looks like about a quarter of the Brooks Peninsula would have been an ice-free refugia. You can see it's much more eroded and uh, the valleys don't have the round glacial uh, U-shape to them. Um, just to give the listeners a bit of uh, perspective on uh, how much of Vancouver Island has been logged, uh, this was from the Ministry of Logging's uh, act- uh, website. They subdivided into 31% of the island is general management. That means logging with virtually no uh, ecological regard, just voracious clear-cutting that has uh destroyed the island. Then there's what they call enhanced forestry. And I think that's what that means. That's a euphemism for uh, where they uh, call it ecoforestry. And, um, you know, the government's idea of ecoforestry is that you go in and you clear cut. The difference being that you leave a tree every 100 meters or a clump of marginal trees that have no uh, commercial value. So that would be that's uh, 31% gen- general management, 24% enhanced forestry. And then there's 18% of Vancouver Island is private lands where there's it's just uh, balls out, uh, no rules, no oversight. You can't access any information because it's all private land. And they, that has just been absolutely gutted. And most tragically, all of Vancouver Island's coastal Douglas fir ecosystem, the uh, biogeoclimatic zone that uh, features the magnificent fir trees, that is entirely contained within that 18% and has been exterminated by voracious uh, logging. There's virtually nothing left for old growth fir on Vancouver Island, just a, a few little patches. And then there's these special management areas, uh, which are 8%. And these are defined as areas whose management priorities must incorporate identified primary environmental, recreational, and cultural heritage values. And this particular area that we're talking about between Claskino Inlet and Claskish Inlet falls into that area. Ultimately, uh, I I was telling about how uh, my buddy and I climbed up to the height of land. Well, the next day, we climbed back down and we hiked out along the waterfront, a very difficult thrash to try to get to East Creek Estuary. And, um, you know, we got about halfway by noon. And it was a, quite a beautiful day, I remember. And we sat down and we ate all the rest of our food for lunch that we'd brought. And we decided, well, do we want to keep thrashing to East Creek? It's going to mean that we won't have a tent or any food for tonight. But do we want to do that or go back to our, our tent in the Class Geesh? And we decided to forge ahead and we... Uh, got to the East Creek Estuary. We went for a swim, made a fire, and my buddy went to sleep inside a great big tree that we'd found, a big cedar tree that had a hollow trunk. And I just curled up next to the fire and and just watched the full moon rise over uh, uh, Mount uh, Doom, which is one of the prominent mountains on on uh, the Brooks Peninsula. And, uh, you know, it's just a magical evening we ate some mussels that we'd gathered and um, and then we hiked back the next day so 
that began, uh, 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 that was the first of numerous visits there. Ultimately, after a few more kayak trips, um, I'd noticed a lot of uh, culturally modified trees, which is the Ministry of Logging term for trees that have been uh, historically bark peeled or plank splits or resin gathering or other uh uses by First Nations traditionally pre-contact. And I'd noticed a lot of uh, bark-peeled trees, and uh, including a, a very distinct village site with uh, shell middens and all that. So I, uh, my wife and I were going to UVic at the time, and we uh, proposed to do a joint disciplinary CMT research expedition to the Brooks. And uh, we got that. We got our... Um, protocol permissions all in order from the Quatsino First Nations. And I think we did about eight trips out there doing increment coring uh, and uh, just hiking around looking for CMTs. And um, just, you know, out of that research, we dated trees that had been peeled in the 1700s uh, out there. So just around the Klaskish village site. So your your yeah. first trip, uh, Igmar, that you say that was like twenty, a little more than twenty years ago, and and you and Krista went up there a little bit after that. What has happened to East Creek, the East Creek Estuary, and the this area that you describe at the Klaskish since then? Well, East Creek has been entirely destroyed by logging. It's it's uh, pretty shocking that in 20 years they can just annihilate a, a watershed like that. I mean, if you do a Google Earth flight over East Creek, it, it's just shocking. And they're, log they're currently logging right up to the, on the flanks of Mount Nunatak, which is the highest mountain on the Brooks Peninsula. It's actually called Mount Nunatak. There, uh, I think it's Lemaire Lake logging out of Port McNeil is currently clear-cutting the whole uh, north face of... Uh, Mount Nunatak and the the boundary for the um, you know the Brooks Peninsula so-called park is right through the summit of Mount Nunatak so they're just gonna you know just pillage it right to the top but the area I mean we'd kind of given up on East Creek what happened was um, uh, there was a, a consortium of Angos, uh, Sierra Club and Greenpeace, et cetera, et cetera, that began a campaign to protect East Creek and got the Quatsino First Nation all involved and all excited about it. But uh, simultaneously, there was this big uh, push to uh, get the so-called Great Bear Rainforest deal pushed through. And I personally believe that um, East Creek was sacrificed uh, to logging in exchange for concessions on the Great Bear Rainforest deal, which in itself was a pretty shoddy uh, sham of a deal where, uh, you know, a bunch of these uh, unfortunately professional angos capitulated and, and got a a pretty a pretty bad deal out of, out of that but uh nevertheless uh east creek got sacrificed the quatsino uh were we were you know regularly communicating with them and uh you know the our contact there was very upset that uh, east creek had been abandoned and uh there wasn't anything they could really do uh to stop you know it was uh east creek was a, a warehouse atrocity 
So anyway, um, as part of our kayaking expeditions, we would launch in Klaskino Inlet and we'd kayak up to the south entrance to Klaskino, which is a place called Heater Point. And from Heater Point around to East Creek and the Klaskish is a very exposed stretch, about 10 kilometers of open water where the ocean swells come all the way from Japan, basically unimpeded. And um, so it was always a bit of a heart in the mouth, like getting around Heater Point. And then once you got to the uh, East Creek, there's uh, some protection there with uh, McDougal Island and the village site there where we had permission to uh, establish a camp. And uh, But that particular kayak was just the most spectacular waterfront full of beaches, little pocket beaches and caves and this entirely intact flank of the mountains um, between Klaskino and Klaskish was all intact. And, um, and that particular area had been donate, uh, denoted or designated as an area that was particularly high priority for visual protection. It's the west coast of Vancouver Island. We've already seen the various atrocities such as Weyerhaeuser's wet Red Stripe Mountain, which is between Quatsino Inlet and Klaskino, just to the north, where Weyerhaeuser went in there and stripped the entire mountain right from the beach, right to the summit, and right down the other side. There is, was not a single original tree left on that mountain, and then Yap Yappy Cop Mountain, which is between Klaskino and Klaskish, which has been entirely stripped. And then further down the coast behind Cayucat, there's the particularly shocking and uh, infamous uh, destruction of Mount Paxton which uh, and St. Paul's Dome, which Interforce stripped right from the beach right over the top and right down the other side. This is completely denuded mountains. So I kind of had this idea that uh, that stretch from Heater Point between Klaskino and Klaskish and the entire Brooks Peninsula would be spared the axe. Uh, but that was not to be, as I, much to my chagrin, have um, discovered uh, just recently. It's, it's been destroyed. Well, how are these guys? I mean, the the picture you paint, uh, Igmar, uh, getting in, and you know how remote this place is, and how difficult it is to traverse. How are these logging companies managing it? Are they punching roads in, or is this heli logging, or some combination of the two? This is the crudest, uh, indistinguishable logging techniques from anything that's ever happened on Vancouver Island. It's just blast smash and bash a road through there and then bring in your grapple yarders and your high lead yarders and your huge off-road logging trucks, mow the whole forest down. This isn't even uh, this isn't even what they call variable retention where they are leaving a tree, a single tree every 100 meters or 50 meters uh, or patches. It's just absolute massive uh, 40 hectare clear cuts all the way, just a string of them with, uh, you know, what they call a fire guard, like a little strip of timber in between each clear cut. And I mean, this has happened in the last five years. Now, how do I know that? Well, if you look at Google Earth, 
of the image currently, like, you know, I've got Google Earth just like uh, anybody. And uh, I realize Google is right in there uh, uh, with, the you know, the kind of um, algorithm bots and things like that and bought in with uh, corporate autocracy, uh, just like anything. But, uh, you know, the, Google, the most current Google Earth imagery that's available to the public shows that entirely intact and the, their image is uh, taken in 2016. But where I learned that this had happened was that uh, I got uh, an email recently uh, on one of the listservs that was showing herring spawn uh, seen from space. And there was three different images. One showed up by Prince Rupert. You could see this beautiful translucent blue herring spawn very clearly from uh, the satellite image, right? Uh, and then there's one in uh, Kumshawa Inlet in Haida Gwaii, that the same thing. You could see the herring spawn. And the third one was the Brooks Bay, just off uh, Klaskish. And in fact, right in this area between Klaskino and Klaskish Inlets, you could see the translucent blue herring spawn from space. And I was like, oh, it's just opalesque. It's so beautiful. And then I noticed that the entire waterfront stretch from Heater Point to the Class Geish has been just ruthlessly, heartlessly, voraciously destroyed by logging. So I went back and I checked with Google Earth, no sign of it. So I'm like, well, you know, this imagery must be old. And, uh, you know, I got some people say, oh, yeah, well, what they do is they, you know, they'll come in and, and intermesh. When you zoom it in, you actually get to an aerial photograph and blah, blah, blah. Because immediately I, it, it raises a red flag with me because I have noticed when I first got Google Earth like 20 years ago, um, the distinctions between fresh clear-cutting, primary forest, second subsequent growth, post-logging subsequent growth forests were very distinct. You could see the clear-cutting patches would show up on the Google Earth imagery very clearly, and you could see where the second growth was coming in, and then the primary old-growth forests uh, were very easy to see the difference. So uh, to look at a uh, map of Vancouver Island, a Google Earth image of Vancouver Island 20 years ago was much uh, more viscerally shocking than what you see today. Google Earth has dumbed that down. And uh, so it's much, you, it's very difficult to actually determine the difference between old growth and second growth. And then the new clear cuts are also dumbed down so they don't look quite as, as hideous. A computerized Potemkin village, environmentally speaking. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Gorilla Radio. I'm speaking today with Igmar Lee. Igmar is a longtime BC-based environmental defender. He's also a longtime uh, employee in the timber business as a tree planter. You did that for many years. You're not somebody entirely from the outside. Uh, his latest article is Voracious Industrial Logging Between Klaskish and Klaskino Inlets. Uh, and we're talking about some of that today. The, the other thing, Chris, that's particularly heartbreaking about this is that, you know, whereas 20 years ago when we were first going out there, there was a much heightened uh, awareness amongst the general public about the very, the very great risk uh, of, uh, you know, losing everything on Vancouver Island. But that has been 
unfortunately abated. And, uh, you know, especially back then, I suspect that 20 years ago, if Interfor had put in to do that kind of destruction, um, they would have been denied uh, because it, it's supposed to be amongst the 8% of special management areas who's, you know, has these extremely high priority uh, recreational, cultural, and heritage values, right? But uh, nowadays, Interfor must have calculated, oh, I think we can get away with that. And we'll get Google Earth to help us out and keep that blind from the public. Now, the other thing that uh, I noticed was I'm uh, also a frequent visitor to the Marine Traffic AIS website, where I track, uh, you know, the ATB tankers and that sort of thing that that ply the BC coast, unbeknownst to the somnolent ten thousand uh, ton tanker. Public. Yeah, but on the marine traffic, which uses uh, a Google Earth image to superimpose these uh, ship movements on, it's got the the latest uh, image that shows uh, uh, these clear cuts. Um, well, they've got some inside information on new imagery from Google that is being withheld from the general public. So I'm, this is a, a very serious issue. If Google Earth is being used on behalf of the corporatocracy to hide or to minimize the, hum, the obvious human devastations that are occurring on our planet, that's a particularly egregious thing because they're up there watching, they can see the damage, and they're probably getting some kind of a cut from the logging industry to, to you know, mellow it out. And, oh, here, we're going into this particularly high sensitivity area. So could you not uh, update your imagery for that uh, area until we've already finished and then you know people can whine and bitch but it's already uh, been destroyed so you know we'll just uh, they'll they'll ha won't won't be able to do anything right the other thing that goes along with that i've tried to search the ministry of logging and there's not no other term for it uh, forestry in british columbia means nothing else but logging i want to know the name of the forester, the so-called BC forest professional that signed off on those cutting permits. And I want to know simply who cut it because, and you try to find, I've just spent, you know, to prepare for this radio show, I've just spent the whole morning trying to go through this labyrinthine ministry of logging website to try and find a simple TFL or timber supply uh, areas designation of Vancouver Island that shows which licensee is doing what in all these different areas. And, you know, as far as I can tell, uh, this particular area isn't in a tree farm license or a timber supply area, these, these horrible terminology. I, I'd like to nail this down. And I want to go after them. I want to go after their customers, their markets, their so-called bogus ecological certifications that they hold up to say they're doing, uh, you know, kinder, more sensitive logging, and just expose that bullshit. Well, thanks a lot, Igmar, for coming on again and telling us a little bit about this today. And I also want to thank Diana Johnstone over there in Paris. Again, her article is 
Germans down and Russians out. You can find that at consortiumnews.com. Thanks again, Igmar. Their message always to everybody through all their advertising, all their PR, everything is, we are your friends. And it's like, no, you are not our friends. Friends are not people whose bottom line is how much profit they can make out of you. It is completely different. Guerrilla Radio, knowing who our real friends are since 1999. We're running out of time to put out a fire.